Just how unstable are today's markets? Well, the most widely accepted indicator of how fairly valued stocks are is the ratio of the entire value of the stock market compared to GDP. This is called the Buffett indicator, named after the famed investor Warren Buffett, who calls it, quote, the best single measure of where valuations stand at any given moment. As you can see here in the US, the Buffett indicator has recently zoomed to a record all-time high of 216%, indicating that the stock market is now more overpriced than it has ever been. This is making the experts who track market prices closely increasingly worry that a major market correction could happen in the near future. Just for perspective, I mean, the 2000 bubble I mentioned uh, was at 150% market cap to GDP. It bottomed at like 65% market cap to GDP. The, the, the 2007 housing bubble, it bottomed at 50% market cap to GDP. It basically went just below the, the, the 50, 60 year mean, right? So we are so far beyond anything that we've ever seen in, in this context. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets so that you can make better informed decisions about building your wealth. This interview with technical analyst Sven Henrik is a bit special. Sven spent nearly two full hours with us, providing an extremely generous amount of both macro context as well as detailed walkthroughs of a number of the charts he's famous for. Given its length, we've divided the interview into three digestible parts, which we'll be releasing on this channel over the coming week. Here's part one. Enjoy. In attempt to determine what the markets will do from here, we usually analyze the big macro trends on this program. The macro view helps us understand what should happen next. But to improve our overall understanding, we also need to take into account of what is happening right now and what history tells us has happened in the past when similar setups occurred. And for that perspective, we turn to technical analysis, the charts, patterns, and statistical data that help us visualize and comparatively assess price action. Today, we're extremely fortunate to be joined by one of the best technical analysts in the business today, Sven Henrik. Sven runs NorthmanTrader.com, where he publishes a prodigious amount of highly respected daily analysis and commentary on market prices. Sven, thank you so much for joining us today, all the way from the UK. Hi, Adam. Glad to be with you. We juggled a few weeks, actually, trying to schedule this, and we decided to pick the most volatile day in the market in in 2021. So <laughs> glad to be with you. <laughs> Murphy's Law. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us with all of this going on in the markets, because I know that that's when you're at your busiest. Um, so let's just dive right into the things here, Sven. Um, I'm going to ask you the question I ask all my guests, experts at the start here. What is your current assessment of today's global economy and financial markets? Well, look, we've obviously gone through unprecedented stimulus, not only on the monetary side, but also on the fiscal side. And that has brought about just an incredible forward push in demand. We've seen uh, consumers flush with more money than ever before. Uh, yet the uh, incredible amounts of liquidity, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more in more depth, has brought about a you know, massive asset inflation on everything. Yeah, and it's spilled over into inflation. Uh, I know the central bankers like to talk about inflation being predominantly supply chain driven. 
but we have to also recognize that demand has been brought forward. Uh, retail sales, for example, have been consistently about 20% above the trend before the COVID crisis happened. Uh, that does not happen without accident. It is coming from the liquidity, from the stimulus checks and whatever else you have. And therefore that also has an impact on, on supply chain. So we're seeing incredible growth numbers on the economy on the one hand, but we're also seeing divergent issues, such for example, consumer confidence. You would think that consumers would be incredibly positive on such an economy that has grown so fast in, in recent quarters, but they're not. In fact, one of the more notable statistics to me is that consumer sentiment data, and I have a chart for that, uh, actually is as low as it was at the bottom of the crash in March 2020. There is something amiss here, and I think it, it relates to inflation and inflationary pressures that consumers have. So the economy um, in, in general on the global side has, has been on a very much upward trajectory. My general question is, what is the actual economy, the organic economy underneath this? Because, yeah, we can all have the greatest party in the world with free money being thrown at everybody. Uh, at some point, there is a, call it right-sizing in terms of between, you go from a phase when you don't have stimulus checks coming in, when you don't have all this free money uh, around, when central banks are pulling back in liquidity, uh, and, and at the same time confronted with the most extreme valuations we've seen in markets in, in history as defined in terms of the size of the market vis-a-vis -vis this actual size of, of the economy. So, and now that we're dealing with inflation and today as we are recording this, Jay Powell has retired the word transitory that every one of these central bankers has been so keen on repeating for months on end despite inflation data coming in hotter month after month than what they had expected. And markets are not liking this because obviously they're, they're recognizing this. Obviously, inflation may not be transitory, but become more persistent. So all of a sudden, the Fed finds itself in a trap, right? The, the trap of their own making, if you will. For months and months and months, they've been urged by a number of economists. Forget myself, you know, I I, I keep pounding them on at all the, at them all the time. But you know, Mohammed El Arian, for example, being one of them who have been urging them for months during the summer to start the tapering process, but they refused. They kept throwing liquidity, and not, not just any liquidity, the most aggressive liquidity injections we've seen ever, significantly higher than what we saw even at the, in the, during the depths of the financial crisis in 2009. So when you, when you keep pushing this into an inflationary environment, you know, you, you're now seeing the consequences. And, and that's what they're dealing with. You know, on the one hand, you have a massive asset bubble and that needs to be sustained. But if, if you do pop it via rising rates or cutting off QE, uh, then you risk a recession itself because the market vis-a-vis -vis the economy has gotten so large that it can ill afford, and that's my contention, can ill afford a larger drawdown. So we're, we're in this period now at the end of December, you have positive seasonality, generally speaking, but you also have a massively extended market that has not corrected basically since March 2020. Yes, we had a 10% pullback in September of last year uh, in 2020. But since November of 2020, there's been one constant in the world, okay? With, with all the news that we've had going, with all the 
the positives and the negatives, whatever else is thrown at this market, there's been one constant so far between November of 2020 and November of 2021. And that is the Fed balance sheet making new all-time highs and the S&P making new all-time highs. That's the one constant. Uh, and of course, the ECB continues to print in an exorbitant amounts as, as well. And the question now is, as we're approaching this tapering moment, and even Powell today acknowledged that maybe they have to accelerate the taper at the December meeting. Uh, you know, how can markets react to that with now the relationship perhaps coming unglued? That's, I think, the, the concern. So I think you know, we may still see a Santa rally. It's generally my contention, especially if we get very oversold here during this intermittent corrective period. And we'll talk about charts in a moment. Uh, question is, what happens next year? Uh, and if inflation continues to force them to tighten faster than they wanted to, markets are now having to reconcile that, uh, along with obviously consumer confidence that's been greatly uh, impeded by rising prices. So that's kind of my opening statement here. All right, great, great, great context. Um, all right, I, I do want to get to the charts in just a moment, get into the technical analysis part of the story here. Um, but before we do, just stay at the, the macro for a moment. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that uh, you know, the economy has been juiced. Uh, the markets have been similarly juiced. Um, and the one constant in this story, uh, really, I would say for the past decade, right, has been central bank intervention, but, but certainly since the pandemic hit, uh, the Fed and the world other central banks have just been pumping, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars into the system. There's also been the, the monetary, sorry, the fiscal stimulus uh, in parallel with that. And as we are going forward, it's looking like both of those liquidity spigots uh, are going to be turning less or turning off. You know, and in the case of the Fed, uh, you know, they're talking about tapering and, and stopping that taper. They were talking about ending by middle of next year. Now, Powell today is saying we might need to accelerate that. Um, so that really is a game changer here. And Sven, I've been following your work for a long time. Uh, you have been ringing the warning bell for years about how dangerously overvalued these markets are. And that was before all of this recent crazy juicing uh, from, from all the um, post-pandemic liquidity. Um, so I guess my question for you is how far away are we right now looking at market prices from your general estimate of fair value? You know, if we, if we have this um, right-sizing of the economy or even right-sizing of the financial markets uh, to what fundamentals can bear, how far down is down? Is it 10%? Is it 50%? Is it more than that? What, what's your gut or what does your analysis tell you? Well, let me put out first a disclaimer, okay? And that is to say that, that you know, I've been always for the last few years been asking, okay, when do we see consequences? When, when does something matter? When, when is it becoming too much where you distort the financial workings of the system so much that it just refuses to, to adhere? And I, I have to frankly admit, I'm, I'm baffled how far this has gone, especially this year. Let me put a couple of things in context, okay? It's just so your audience understands this uh, as well. Q quantitative easing QE, low rates, 
these were emergency measures that were employed by then Fed Chair Ben Bernanke. This was during the global financial crisis. I no problem with that. I mean, the world was literally falling apart. We were hours away from the whole financial system blowing up. So I, I have no quarrels with them going in and doing whatever they needed to do to stabilize the financial system. Fine. But then this, this kind of you know, mission creep has worked itself in over, over the years. And that is whenever anything happened in markets, you know, whenever they stopped QE, as a matter of fact, after they stopped QE1, we had a big correction. And all of a sudden they felt the need to come in with more QE. And it worked each time, right? And we had Operation Twist, we had QE3. All these things started to come into play. And it, it is that, that process where they went from a you know emergency measure to a kind of a go-to easy drug solution uh, to manage the economy via market levels. Ben Bernanke actually wrote about this himself because the view was that if we have rising markets, we have rising consumer confidence. People feel wealthier, so they will want to spend more, right? James J. Powell in 2012 talked about that investors have come to realize that we, the Fed, are there to prevent serious losses. And so you, you started developing this relationship between not only central bank policy, but this whole notion of job owning, because all of a sudden central bankers became the gods of markets. And ever since then, you see every Fed speech, every Fed speaker, every press conference being closely watched for hints, they're being gamed. And look at the headlines, you know, just in the recent years, you know, whenever Powell speaks, markets jump with joy. And this has been in the game. Um, markets have therefore actually disconnected from the basic fundamentals of what markets are supposed to be, right? You're supposed to have earnings growth, right? Earnings growth is fantastic for stocks. It shouldn't matter. In the last four years, it hasn't mattered at all. 2018, I'll give you an example. Earnings were actually up on the year, but stocks tanked into the fourth quarter. Why? Because it was the only period since 2009, the only three-month period since 2009, when the Fed's language shifted from accommodative to non-accommodative. The 10-year hit 3.2%. Remember, we've been financing everything with debt since for, for decades, basically, but obviously since the financial crisis in an accelerated way. And the debt construct simply could not handle a 10-year hitting 3.2%. Stocks dropped hard 20%. And what did the Fed do? Jay Powell came out, flip-flopped immediately from you know, balance a sheet roll off in on autopilot uh and and on i think it was january 4th he came out and the dow immediately flew up seven eight hundred points and so in 2019 then the s p rallied 30 percent on zero earnings growth there was it didn't matter what mattered were three rate cuts in 2019 with unemployment at three and a half percent, may I add, 50-year lows in unemployment, because now you hear all this thing, we're going to keep rates low until we have full unemployment. Sorry, that, that narrative just doesn't jive because they cut rates three times. They didn't cut rates three times in 2019 because there was a recession. There wasn't any. We were at three and a half percent unemployment. But they cut rates three times because they had set the expectation for the market you know, that, that we're going to be responsive to you know, whatever the issues supposedly were. 
and then of course they ended expanding ended up expanding their balance sheet in 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 the latter part of 2019 they stopped the uh, balance sheet roll off and let me put this in perspective i, I just everybody kind of needs to kind of get a handle on what's been going on here in the last few years it's absolutely mind-boggling before the financial crisis the fed's balance sheet was 700 billion dollars okay that they already had assets and this that and the other but it was not really an active part of managing the economy or markets or what have you in six years between 2009 and into 2014-15 the balance sheet expanded to four and a half trillion dollars so about 3.7 trillion dollars big big amount right so this whole taper process or not to taper excuse me the balance sheet reduction process from 2017-18 into literally the fourth quarter of uh, or middle of 2019 they just reduced it by 700 billion dollars they got down to about 3.7 trillion again uh and before they stopped it and guess what happened we're now at 8.7 trillion dollars they literally added $5 trillion to their balance sheet in a year and a half vis-a-vis -vis the five, which is more than the five, six years that we saw between the financial crisis and when it peaked in the middle of 2015, so 2016. So the, 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 and this is not only the Fed, this is, this is, you know, at the ECB, at the Bank of China, Bank, Bank of Japan, that you're looking at over 31, $32 trillion now here in the fourth quarter of 20. 21. I mean, these are these are enormous sums of money. Staggering. It, it's it's absolutely staggering. And, and to think about to think in this environment that you are not changing the entire correlation of everything in terms of what a natural market price discovery process would look like, I, I think it's naive to say. It, it it absolutely changes everything, and it's created the the greatest FOMO Tina. Uh, process in, in history. But my point is here, we're talking about tapering. No one's even talked about the Fed ever pulling back on their balance sheet again. I, I think that that, <laughs> that that bird has flown away. Uh, I think the, the experience in 2018 was, uh, I think, quite revealing. It, it, it revealed that they couldn't do it, that they couldn't extract themselves. So, so just, just, just like you said, transitory is dead normalization is dead as well there is no way they can normalize you know it, it if they couldn't pull out 700 billion they certainly can't pull out the five trillion they just added it it, it just it won't work you know i think they'll just let it roll off and sit on their balance sheet besides i don't i don't think they're done uh, expanding their balance sheet anyway because you know here comes climate change that's as the next task right. to to handle you know? uh so i mean we, we just have to recognize that everything in this regard has changed emergency measures became permanent but the trap is there i think that the 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 they were able to get away with all this between 2009 2016 17 18 or even 2020 was the fact that we were in a deflationary environment what are the big drivers of deflation it's technology it's demographics mainly um and and so they were fighting an uphill battle with inflation there uh, and so the 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 attempt to stimulate the economy with cheap money sort of made sense if if you will uh, but now we're in an inflationary environment and inflation has vastly exceeded the expectations will inflation come back down and actually be transitory um yes actually yes even though um, powell retired the world i, I had um 
interview I saw with Stan Druckenmiller in, the, in May, and I posted that on Twitter a couple of times, uh, which I think got a lot of response back then. And, and Stan Druckenmiller, who's arguably one of the most successful managers in financial markets ever, you know, he made a, made a clear point. And is that because before inflation actually becomes entrenched, the asset bubbles pop. And then, yeah, inflation would have been transitory. Inflation has always been transitory. It was transitory in Weimar, Germany. You know, the problem is, you know, what, what are the consequences of inflation um, bringing down an economy? Because you get to the point where you have a shift in demand. You know, 20% year-over-year house price increases is, is not a good thing for, for most people. You know, it's great, great for the asset owners. But you know, if you if you're looking at an economy that's seventy percent dependent on consumers, and a lot of consumers are hurting, going back to my um, chart about consumer sentiment, uh, you, you you're risking of breaking something, and that maybe that's that's now the question: Have they trapped themselves to to actually break that relationship? Is the ability to stimulate the economy with asset prices, with asset price inflation, has that is that game coming to an end? All right, and uh, so great, great context. Um, and, and it is, you know, even just hearing you summarize the points that I am familiar with, it still is pretty mind-blowing to hear them all just strung together like that. I don't think we would have believed that we could be where we are today if somebody had told us two, three years ago that all this stuff was gonna happen in between now and then, uh, and that the world would still be quasi-functioning right now. Um, but I wanna go back to my my question right before we get to your charts next, Ben, which is, um, I'm going to put some words in your mouth based upon what you said and correct me if I'm wrong here. But I think like many of the other experts we've had on this, this program, um, it sounds like you have a lot of concerns that the system has become so distorted, so deformed, so overinflated um, asset price-wise um, that a material reckoning is likely in the works at some point here. And so, um, if that's true, I just want to get back to the question, which is how, how big of a reckoning do you think we're talking about here? You know, I, I, yes. Jer Jeremy Grantham just said he thinks the next correction could be bigger than 1929. Are you thinking it's on that scale? Not as bad. What, what do you think? Thanks for following up, Adam, because I think I kind of went on a background journey on, on this as well. So let me specifically use one indicator um, that, you know, you hear a lot about people saying, oh, it's different this time and it doesn't matter. Okay. Classic indicator is market valuation vis-a-vis GDP. Okay. And for background, we have a the chart Buffett here. Indicator. Yes, the Buffett indicator, uh, Wilshire 5000 over the actual size of the economy. We, we should recognize that in, in, you know, in the last 50 years, yeah, that ratio was around 60 to 80% of GDP. Okay. Now the economy has changed. We had a technology revolution, but we also had bubbles and we had bubbles that blew up. The most infamous bubble in, in our lifetime, obviously the, the 2000 tech bubble. And the, the, the economy or the, the market rather disconnected from the size of the economy to a level of about 150%. It was, it was unseen up until that point, it was just completely disconnected. And that, that's reflective of simply valuations that were not um, reflective of the reality of the potential of these companies at that time. And so we saw that reckoning. And that partially, by the way, from a historical perspective, was brought about because 
the the concerns surrounding Y2K, right? That was the big scary thing at the time. You know, the computer clocks are flipping over and maybe everything will stop, right? So it was actually Alan Greenspan at the time who injected a lot of liquidity into the system just to have everybody be prepared in, in case something goes bad, right? And that helped fuel, again, liquidity going into markets and everybody went nuts and everybody believed everything. Everybody was a genius because everything kept going up, right? And then the tech bubble burst in March of 2000. And ironically, and this is, I think, kind of interesting to take note of as well, the Dow and the S&P, they just kind of doodled in a large range for about six months uh, following that tech bubble burst. And the real consequences of then the tech bubble bursting and then the economy going into a recession, that happened later in that year uh, in 2000. And then it didn't, markets didn't, bottom and I think until about 2002 2003 and then and then guess what central banks came in cheap money right because that's how they deal with the recession at the they time. ride to the rescue to the rescue and what did that bring us that cheap money it got us you know Massive very housing cheap mortgages. <laughs> it got us a housing bubble exactly so you, you can argue that cheap money actually produced excess reckless behavior and that's what we saw obviously with with all these people coming into um, these subprime mortgages, which Mr. Chair Benenke at the time in 2007 was, it was contained. Subprime is contained. It's not a threat to the economy. And of course, we know the hist uh, rest is history and it blew up. But then, you know, that that bubble, the housing bubble, got us about 130% market cap to GDP. So I'm, I'm just giving you a history for perspective because when we got to February of 2020, Guess where that market cap to GDP ratio was? Any takers? Hell of, hell of a lot higher. Fe February 2020? February 2020, just before the crash. 180%. No, it was 158. 158%, 160%. Now you can make the case, okay, we got these global tech conglomerates, Apple, Google, Microsoft, blah, blah, blah. But it was a bubble. That was my point back then. And I had all these articles about you know, warning signs, this, that, and the other. Now, I raised this point here because in the lead up to the COVID crash, we saw tech leading and we saw small caps lagging. We saw banks lagging. There were all kinds of underlying issues with that final rally. It was in January of 2020. We had a new all-time high. COVID came kind of around the corner a little bit. We had a quick 5% drop or what have you. Everybody ignored the, the new virus, obviously. And then we made another new high in February 2020. Everybody was bullish, right? And then, of course, the unexpected trigger with COVID and shutdown that not one could have foreseen. But the price action that followed in, a, in an environment where the Fed was already expanding its, printing, its, its balance sheet and had already cut rates three times, the NICE, which is a broad index of the United States stock market, took out seven years of gains in a matter of six weeks. And th this was an absolute massive drop. Yes, the S&P dropped 35%. Yes, the Dow dropped massively. But the broader index just got completely, utterly obliterated. And, th and that was a reflection, in my view, also of the excess that was already in that bubble that we had then. Okay. And of course, you know, back then it was clear this is gonna, this is as most oversold as we've seen markets ever because it happened in such a short period of time. Remember the 2000 bubble? I said that took months and months and months and months to filter through. 
this was an event, right? And of course, what they've done now, and this is the context to, it's a, I know it's a long-winded answer to your question, but I'm, I'm just giving you the context. Right, what, we see, what we see now in, in here in November, when, when they made new all-time highs, we got to 214% market cap to GDP. Okay, if, if, if you even take out, if you take out Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, take them all, Amazon, take them all out, like they don't exist. You're still looking at a market at 150% market cap to GDP, like the tech bubble of 2000. And if you say, okay, well, these companies have a global footprint, which is all true, look at the global um, Buffett indicator, over 142%, totally in the stratosphere. So you, you are in a position where if you just have a right sizing back to the peaks of the previous bubbles, you're, you're looking at absolute massive pain to the extent that that pain would bring about a recession. That's the trap. You know, when, when you always intervene, when you never let markets correct, and that's what we all have come to learn over the last 10, 12 years, is that corrections don't last because every time there is a correction, 2015, 2016, 2011, 2012, they immediately come in. They, they don't let the system settle because they've become so afraid of the monster that they've created. That's why you have you know, the ability for central banks to go all in in a matter of days, but then they take years of jawboning and haggling and this and that and the other, like the summer. They, they could have easily tapered. You know, they, they should have tapered but they couldn't bring themselves about to do it because they're afraid of the market reaction. They're afraid of the monster that they've created. And now they're in the box, right? Uh, all right, great answer. So, you know, basically you're saying, look, um, we, got a, we got sort of a preview of how brutal the right sizing could be back in that, that vicious, but very short market drop last year. Uh, you yeah, mentioned just, IC, seven years of gains wiped out, right? But, yeah, but and just, just, a lot better, just, just for perspective, I mean, the 2000 bubble I mentioned uh, was at 150% market cap to GDP. It bottomed at like 65% market cap to GDP. The, the, the 2007 housing bubble, it bottomed at 50% market cap to GDP. It basically went just below the, the, the 50, 60 year mean, right? So we are so far beyond anything that we've ever seen in, in this context. Um, you know, what's the right answer? I, I can't tell you. Um, but I, I, what I can tell you is that, you know, if you're talking about, you know, positioning this year, we've seen more inflows into stocks just this year than in the previous 20 years combined. Everybody is wrong. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I, I keep wanting to get to your charts, but you keep bringing up these great points. But I mean, that to me just sounds like a classic late stage bubble phenomenon there where everybody throws caution to the wind and jumps into the pool. Is that how you're looking at that? Well, and, and, and they've been right. I mean, you know, you, to be completely reckless has paid in this market. It paid to be completely reckless in 2000 until it didn't pay. Right, right, right. I mean, all these investors are just responding to the incentives that the central banks are laying out for them, right? Yeah, and it's it's learned behavior because you know everybody's learned that trick in in the sense that we know they're going to flip if they if they need to. Right, right. And, and sorry, just to the other side of that learning process too is everybody who has tried to short this market has just been obliterated 
over the past bunch of years, right? So not only have people learned, hey, I, I, I don't fight the Fed, I just go along with them and I get rewarded. God, the guys that have tried to stand up for the fundamental case have just been steamrolled. Well, see, this is where, you know, I, I don't know how other people short, <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if you short and you stay short, yeah, you're going to get killed. You know, I mean, this is where technicals come, obviously, and you're going to have tactical opportunities and, and, and you can take advantage of them uh, when, when you have the right setup. I mean, for example, Russell just absolutely got hammered in November is one of the fastest drops in the small caps ever. Um, you know, we dropped from all time highs on November 8th on the Russell to down 11% today, this in the same month. That's, that's incredible flip-flop. So there are shorting opportunities, you know, to be absolutely clear. All right, great. Well, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but let's use this as the segue into the technical side of the discussion here, um, because you and, you know, many of the other experts we've had on this channel, you, you're in the business of saying, look, we, we, we just live in the world that we have right now. And we as investors have to make the, the best of it as we can. You are more of a trader. Um, you know, you're looking in your, a lot of your analysis at sort of opportunities in the short term. I mean, you do spend a lot of time commenting on the macro as well, but you're commenting right now on, hey, in the midst of these you know, this massive arc of, of um, central bank uh, elevation of asset prices, there still are you know, patterns in here that the nimble trader can find opportunity in. So um, why don't I hand the baton to you? Maybe if you could just, just speak for 30 seconds about kind of the practice of technical analysis and the value it brings to fundamental analysis. Uh, and then maybe you could share with us the charts that you're looking at most closely these days. Okay. Well, fair enough. First of all, on, on, on your comment, just to be clear, yes, we, we know we have central bank intervention in markets and they influence markets. And we have to trade the markets that we have, not the markets that we want, right? I mean, you, you know, old man yelling at cloud does not generate returns, right? That's, that's unfortunately the, the reality of, of things. And sometimes you got to recognize charts get blown out of the water. I mean, if you look at some of the meme stocks this year, you know, GME, AMC, which is ridiculous runs, right? But we also have to recognize, and this is where technical analysis is extremely useful. Uh, basically, to me, what technical analysis is to find the point, the pivot points that are relevant to the market, okay? And it's resistance, it's support, it's levels, it's patterns. And we all have to recognize we are in a market that's driven by algorithmic trading. It's it's a huge portion of, of this market. And, you know, algorithmic programs are exactly that. They're programs. They adhere to rules as well because they are programs. They have to have, you know, certain um, intelligence built into them. And and so you, you got to be able to identify what these patterns are, what is relevant to these markets. Yes, we use signal charts. That's that's the subcomponent of when we look at the index charts and the various patterns. One of the simplest things I can point to is, is trend lines. You know, we can all argue about trend lines, but they're, they're absolutely fascinating. Take the strongest index that we have in this market, which is the NASDAQ. And I got a chart here, the NASDAQ weekly. Absolutely fascinating how absolutely clean that has been this year. It was clean in the previous year before the crash as well. Um, these are pivot points in terms of support and resistance. There, there are wobbles. You can have little spikes to the upside. You can have little spikes to the downside. But I'll, I'll, I'll point out 
the upper trend line here on this NASDAQ weekly chart, I mean, it held all year long and every single time it was resistance and there's been a pullback off sort, right? Sometimes a stronger pullback, sometimes a smaller pullback. If you look at this chart though, you notice that even the final high that we had here in November, it actually poked above the trend line that was on the Powell announcement, but guess what? It was resistant, so it immediately pulled back off that, right? And so it, it actually held that trend line. And one of the other things that I've been watching out, and I get hammered on Twitter for this all the time, right? You cannot chart volatility, blah, 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 blah. Big believer in structural charts on volatility. And volatility is one of those things that, you know, you, you can't, you can't rely on it on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, yes, you can in terms of gaps and so forth, but in terms of the big structural charts, they send a message. And if you look at the lower part of the chart, you see the VXN, which is the volatility index of the NASDAQ, the NDX. And it too had a corollary pattern to that uprising uptrend all year long, right? Lower lows, lower lows, lower lows. Look how precise this all was the entire year. But note here in the final phase of this rally, notice how that VXN volatility index started rising while the NASDAQ was rising. All of a sudden the relationship shifted, meaning there was what we call a positive divergence. It was signaling something was up. And look at back to 2020, it was doing the same thing before something larger happened. That doesn't guarantee you that something's happening, but it, it gives you at least a sense of from a risk reward perspective, do I wanna chase these highs on the NASDAQ while its volatility component is rising? Do I wanna chase these highs into the upper trend line uh, while volatility is rising? my judgment was no in fact you know i i, I sent you a couple of inverse charts on, on the s p and i just want to highlight that for your viewers in terms of how technical analysis can be not only useful but sometimes also incredibly precise there's an inverse chart of the s p you know i went on vacation i i left uh, november 16th and obviously i i knew that was upside risk in markets. And we had a pattern. And this is, by the way, I posted this on publicly as well in the Northcast, which I started it's on my Twitter profile. You guys can see it. It's for free. I, I put out little video clips where I discuss charts here and there that I find of interest. And I highlighted on November 16th that inverse pattern on the S&P. It, it was not particularly clean, but it was there. I saw it and I had pointed out it had a 4740 target on it. You know, I had no idea what's going to happen. I did not know what internet access level I would have. And I went to Nigeria, you know, it's a developing country. Obviously, you just don't know where you are. So I put a limit order, limit ordered, sell 47.40. Guess what? On Monday, the 22nd, Jay Powell renomination announcement comes out. Previous days, a bunch of chop back and forth. On that Monday, they gapped it up. Where did they stop? 47.43.87. And down it went, straight down. You know, to the point where we are today, where we've seen, obviously, in the last couple of days, sizable downside action. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the market, A, there was a technical pattern. It gave a specific target. We had another longer term chart that says that that level is actually a key pivot of resistance. So not only the inverse, 
gave us a target, but a longer, longer uh, trend chart told us that this was also major resistance. So even though I wasn't in front of my screens, I had no charts, I knew that level was of interest. It was an interesting point to test a fade of the strength. And guess what? Markets reacted to that immediately. So that, that kind of just demonstrates, not that I'm a genius, but it demonstrates that there are points of relevance in the technicals give us a sense as to what's relevant. And clearly that level was relevant and called out beforehand. So. Our interview with Sven continues over in part two, which will be released on this channel over the next few days. We're still editing it as it's got so many charts. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as the little bell icon right next to it. Be sure to click the like button too while you're at it. Also, Sven has kindly allowed us to share his latest Northcast video with you, which you can access right now for free at Wealthion.com Northcast. It's packed with excellent charts and analysis that build on the conversation that Sven and I are having here. And if you'd appreciate a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your portfolio, keeping in mind the risks and opportunities Sven has highlighted here, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next in part two of our video interview with Sven Henrik.